Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. So we're off to a good start. Our text for today is John at chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. This comes from the ESV. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it in bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you first and foremost for the opportunity you give us to gather here as a family of believers and to learn from you. Lord, we ask that just as the disciples had an encounter and an experience with you here on this beach, Lord, here tonight we can have an encounter and an experience with you. Lord, let us lean closer to you, open up our minds and our hearts that we may come to know you better. Lord, speak through me as only you can do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, Avenue family. Um, I realize that I may be a somewhat familiar face to some of you, definitely a new face to a lot of you. Uh, my name is Jeremy Griffin, and for about the past year, me and my wife, Kendall, that's Kendall over there, she's giving you a wave, uh, we have had the pleasure of being part of the Avenue family. Um, my life before the Avenue uh, is somewhat complicated of a story, but can best be described by a series of matching t-shirts, okay? So my parents were missionaries. The groups of teenagers you see in the airport wearing shirts with destinations on them like Mexico, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica. My dad was usually one of the ones leading those types of trips. 
But short-term mission trips are just a very small part of what my parents did. For over 10 years, my parents served in Montevideo, Uruguay, in South America, uh, where they actually met. And it was their mission work there where they planted a church and started a preschool that inspired them to come back to the States, first in Miami and then moving us here to Memphis when my dad accepted a job with Mid-South Christian College. Uh, It was in Memphis that I grew up. Most of my life has been here. And in that time, I really thank the Lord that I was able to grow up in here because I was able to become one of those matching t-shirt kids here in Memphis, all right? My, my parents found a really great church, and I grew up in the era of, like, the shirts that would say, like, One Way to Jesus. That was the name of my youth group, and I loved it. And it was on one of those trips where I was wearing one of those matching t-shirts that I did as I think a lot of us might have done at a youth camp or a youth conference of sorts where I came forward and I was just overcome with emotion uh, and I actually dedicated my life to vocational ministry. So fast forward a few years and now I'm the one leading those trips with the kids in the matching t-shirts. If you're ever at like a McDonald's in a rural part of town and you're eating and you see all the vans pull up with all the kids pile out with the matching t-shirts and you kind of catch the gaze of the tired youth pastor, that was me for five years I worked as a youth pastor. It was my time working with students uh, that really lit a fire in me to do it in a more specific way, and that's what led me to the Memphis Teacher Residency, uh, where for the past two years I have been able to work at an awesome charter school in South Memphis, the Soulsville Charter School, and I've definitely added to my collection of matching t-shirts there as I work as a sixth grade English language arts teacher. If you're not familiar with MTR, Ask somebody next to you, and there's a 99% chance at this church that they either know what it is or they have been a part of it in some way. So that's what I'm doing right now. I have the pleasure of being a sixth grade English language arts teacher. Well, I think the matching t-shirts can be kind of cheesy, but I think they point to something really beautiful, and that's community. Uh, I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for these different pockets of community I got to experience. And that's what I want us to focus on today. I think community is particularly important for us to study, especially within Scripture. I think there's something like a little over 150 verses in the Bible that talk about how to deal with your neighbor. So I think we can really focus in on that community is something that either is important or we're always going to be around it. I mean, just consider some of these biblical communities that we've spent a lot of time studying and talking about. Probably the most popular is from the Old Testament, this community of the people of Israel. Uh, As we move into the New Testament, we have churches like Thessalonica. We have the church in Corinth, which we just spent a lot of time studying uh, through the book of Corinthians. And then today I want us to focus on what's probably the smallest community that we see in Scripture, but one that we can learn a whole lot from. And this was 12 men who decided to dedicate their lives to following Jesus, his disciples. And that's who we read about in today's text. So in our reading today, where did we find this community of Jesus's closest followers? Well, we found them in the water, fishing, away from the shore. And it reads like this. This is verse three of John chapter 21. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
So the scene is set. The disciples are out in the water. Night has fallen. I imagine a frustration has fallen over them as well. They haven't caught anything, and now they find themselves alone and secluded and disappointed. I hope I'm not disappointed tonight. Uh, If you know me, uh, you know that I'm a huge fan of soccer. I can talk soccer all day. And today, for only the second time in my life, uh, Uruguay, Uruguay, is playing the U.S. men's national team. And it's for a friendly. It's not for a trophy or anything like that. But what it does for me is it brings back this disappointment and this hurt. In 2010, with my family, I got to watch as Uruguay made it all the way to the semifinals of the World Cup and get knocked out. And it hurts. And I can still remember the images of the players defeated and heartbroken, uh, head in their hands, uh, and and retreating. Uh, You don't need to be a soccer fan to know what I'm talking about. You don't even need to be a big sports fan to know these images, right? Who are the ones who are usually running towards the crowd, celebrating, taking pictures, smiling, being amongst other people? The winners. Who are usually the ones who seclude away, alone, They retreat. It's the losers. It's incredible to me how fast a stadium like at the Super Bowl or the World Cup can clear out half and half the second their team loses. Why? Losers retreat. To me, John chapter 21 feels a whole lot like a retreat. Why? I could easily paint the picture for you. The disciples' fearless leader of the past three years, this man whom they've built their entire life around, is now gone. I could paint the picture even further. Maybe we could go so far as to say that their leader has been defeated. That would be an easy picture to paint. After all, their leader has been crucified and killed. And we can draw those parallels easily. We can say, well, has there ever been a time that you felt defeated? Have you ever felt like maybe all your hope has been gone and you've just retreated back alone? But I don't think that's really fair to the text. Because if you turn the pages back, just one page in the book of John, these are not sulking disciples who are mourning the death of their leader. These are disciples who have already come face to face with the risen king. They faced the the resurrected Jesus already. So what about coming face to face with your resurrected leader makes you want to retreat alone and fish? What if you were told to? Uh, In the Memphis Teacher Residency, um, we have a series of teaching benchmarks that we call the maturities. I know I might bring up some PTSD to some people just by mentioning the maturities. But the maturities, you get kind of graded on a scale of novice to um, highly effective in these series of qualities that a good teacher should have. One of those being what to do. A good teacher needs to know how to clearly tell their students what to do. Reads like this, directions are specific, concrete, sequential, and they lead to observable action. I think Jesus had great what to do. I think he would score in the highly effective category. I mean, just listen to what he asks of Mary Magdalene once resurrected. This is Matthew chapter 28, verse 10. He says, go and tell my brothers to go 
to Galilee, and there they will see me. So where was this small community of disciples? Fishing. Where does John chapter 21 tell us they were fishing? The Sea of Tiberias. Where is the Sea of Tiberias? Galilee. The disciples are doing exactly what they were asked to do. They were not like my sixth graders, where sometimes it takes a few more reminders. They did exactly what they had to do. But I don't think that that negates their frustration that they're facing. So covenant family, hear me out. Uh, What I want you to understand, if you haven't yet, obedience to God does not always negate frustration. Obedience to God does not negate frustrations. There will be times where we will do exactly what we believe we are being asked to do, yet we find ourselves frustrated. How many of us can relate to that? We do exactly what we feel Scripture tells us to do, what our Father asks of us, yet we find ourselves frustrated and waiting. We wait and wait and wait, and we feel like nothing really changes. The disciples were waiting. Nothing was happening. Physically, in front of them, nothing was happening. They weren't catching any fish, but I don't think it'd be too much of a stretch to say that in the bigger picture, they might have been frustrated that nothing was happening either. They were waiting. Where was Jesus? What were they supposed to do now? Until. And I love that I serve a God of untils, right? Until. John chapter 21, verse 4, just as the day was breaking, who stood on the shore? Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? I love the way the ESV translates that word that we read as children. It's this word pa'aitha. And pa'aitha is most often used in this way to reference children. That alone could preach that he calls them children. Have you seen this Netflix show called Old Enough? Uh, It's this Japanese TV show where they take these toddlers and they send them to do these adult tasks and obviously they can't do them very well. It kind of goes to show that children when lacking direction often find themselves in wacky situations. Uh, It's why so much of my classroom budget this year went to buying things like extra, like, wet wipes and things like that. Because if I give a simple direction, hey, can you clean the room for me? And I might step out. Somebody might decide that cleaning a window, something I've never asked them to do, is something that takes about 10 wet wipes to do, just one window. It just goes to show that you can have the right direction, but without the proper supervision or proper example to follow, you might not get it right. The disciples, like children, I think they needed some supervision here. So who's there to help? Jesus continues on. Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now 
they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. I find it crazy that the disciples were even willing to listen to this person who at the time in their mind was a stranger. If it was me, I would say, we've been here all night. You don't think we know what we're doing? If you look at that word pi, the even more, you learn that in the Greek, it's often used as a figure of authority, an elder, someone who probably knows a little bit more, talking to somebody who knows less, somebody who is less than. So to borrow a language that uh, I learned from my students and that now I joke around and use with Kendall often, uh, if I was fishing and I've been fishing all night and I haven't caught anything and, and my career has been fisherman for a long time, and then somebody comes and says, hey, have you tried this? I would feel like I'm being little bro'd. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I would say, well, we've been trying all night. Like, like you don't think I know what I'm doing, but you know what the disciples did? They acted. Sure, they did it. Why? I think they were desperate. They were frustrated. Maybe they were humbled. Desperation, frustration often causes us to act, does it not? Think of your faith journey and your story. When you have felt the most at a loss, you're willing to try anything. And that's when Jesus loves to show up. So let's continue reading through chapter 21. Let's see what happens. This is verse 7. So they've brought in the fish at this point. And in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Man, how I yearn for moments, I long for moments that when I encounter blessings, my first reaction will be to say, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Jesus was already on the shore, so it wasn't his presence that made a difference. The disciples recognized Jesus, not because of his presence, but because of his provision. He had been there, but until they recognized a goodness that was only possible because of him, their eyes had been blinded. The same is true for us. Avenue, I want us to understand that our blessings should always point us to our Father. Our blessings point to our Father. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred 
and 53 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. 153. 153. I love that number. Not for any deep theological reason. There's no numerology or anything like that taking place. I love 153 because you know what it shows me? Somebody took the time to count. As the old hymn says, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many what? Blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. 153. They counted. So were the disciples discouraged? Were they thinking that all is lost? I mean, we don't know exactly what was going through their minds at this point, but I do know that somebody took the time to count 153 large fish, and 153 large fish were brought ashore. And it's a whole lot harder not to trust who's calling your name when you have 153 fish there to show for it. It says, after that, not one dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Church, are you certain that it is the Lord? Consider your life. If you find yourself feeling down or frustrated, feeling like there is no progress being made, have you taken the time to count? Who's thankful for new morning mercies? Who's thankful for a life abundant? Who is thankful for an easy yoke? If we feel like Jesus isn't here, have we taken the time to count? 153, it's hard to believe that something spiritual isn't involved when after a whole night of fishing you don't catch anything and now you have 153. Within Christian circles, uh, we like this idea of sanctification a whole lot. We, we talk about it quite a bit. We hear it lots. If you follow Jesus, your life should experience some sort of change. The Jeremy from 2022 should not be the same Jeremy from 2019, who should not look like the Jeremy from 2015, who should not look like the one from 2010. There needs to be some sort of growth. Growth is expected. We should be eating solid food, not milk. It's a biblical principle. Think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. We are to grow up into salvation. There is this expectation that there is growth and there is change. How frustrating must it have been for the disciples to find themselves back to fishing after the three years they experienced with Jesus? If we were to look at this just from our own worldly idea of growth, maturity, and change, it doesn't really look like progress. When we first meet Peter, what is he doing? He's fishing. When we see him again, what are they doing? Fishing. 
If you take out all those pages in between and you would say, here are the disciples fishing. Here are the disciples again. What are they doing? They're fishing. We would say, did they even change at all? To them, I imagine it felt like they were back to square one. And maybe you feel like you're back at square one. Maybe you have been on this really intense journey of growth in the Lord, of learning what it looks like to love him and trust in him and follow him. And you experience this change and you're on fire for Christ and you're willing to do whatever it takes to continue to grow and mature and follow him. And then we all know how it goes. The spiritual high fades And within a few months, we find ourselves right back at square one, and we say, well, was it even worth it? Have I even grown at all? Don't be discouraged if that's you. Jesus loves a good square one. Why? You can't build on a weak foundation. So sometimes you need square one. That's when the growth begins. In verse 15, we kind of get this intimate look into one of these square one moments. Verse 15 says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. Do you have friends who um, have gone through, like you knew them as one nickname, and when you reconnect with them, they've moved on to a more adult nickname? Last month, I had the really sweet privilege of going to a wedding celebration from one of my best friends growing up, who I always knew as Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey I grew up with in youth group. He was probably between us the reason that our youth pastor looked so tired all the time. We roomed together in college and we were probably the reason that a lot of our sweet mates didn't get a lot of good sleep during college. Uh, We played in a punk band together for a few years. Um, Jeffrey was, as far as Christian college standards go, we were pretty crazy together. And then... I go to Joplin, Missouri for this wedding celebration, and I meet Jeff. He now goes by Jeff. And Joplin Jeff is a whole lot more mature. Joplin Jeff works at Christ in Youth, this amazing ministry. He spends his summers changing the lives of thousands of teens. And it's funny just to see him interact and everyone, oh, you know Jeff? Yeah, you know Jeff from Memphis? Man, like, oh, we love And they tell you all these stories. You say, really, him? There's a difference, right? Some of us like to mark these like, oh, well, that was like, you know, I was always known by that as I was a kid. And when I go off to college, I kind of want to reinvent myself or when I move. 
Names often help us distinguish the before and the after. Um, Did you notice what name Jesus used to address Peter? It's not Peter, it's Simon, son of John. Do you know when Peter was known as Simon? Before Jesus. For one reason or another, Jesus wanted to call back to Peter's old identity. And we know a little bit of Peter's old identity, don't we? We know that he was eager and quick to try and impress anybody, especially if that anyone was someone like Jesus. In fact, it was this trait that led to one of his greatest embarrassments. But through scripture, we see Simon change, not just in name. We watch as he learns to grow in in trust and in humility and in faithfulness and in commitment to Jesus. And with that comes this name change. Uh, But we also watch as he denies Jesus three times before his death, just as he had boasted he would never do, and just as Jesus had predicted he would. So to bring back Simon, it's to bring up a lot of baggage for Peter and present it right back to his face. It must have been incredibly embarrassing. So when Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, Scripture tells us that Peter was grieved. He couldn't stand to face this past over and over. And maybe you've heard this point before, but if you haven't, it's really beautiful. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. And how many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? Three. To consider our past, we have to face some pretty nasty stuff. It can be painful, it can be convicting, it can be embarrassing. Uh, So why does Jesus do this then? Why are we forced to face our past? Why do we deal with conviction sometimes? He didn't want to bring up Peter's failures to hurt his identity. Uh, He wanted to bring them back up so that he could point Peter to an identity that only Jesus could see. If our blessings point to our Father, then when we see our Father, we need to make sure that our Father points to our restored identity. In this conversation, Peter was being restored. The beauty of this is often lost in translation. When Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, he uses this word agape that I think we all know. For the context of this conversation, agape love is the highest form of love, often this sacrificial form of love. And when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, I love you. But the love that Peter chooses to use is this Greek word uh, phileo, which is more of a friendly type love. It is kind of a step below. Why? Peter felt unworthy to answer that question. He just had his whole past brought up. He's obviously connecting the dots here, and he's thinking, I'm about to get rebuked here. So, yeah, I love you, but obviously I couldn't love you like you needed me to love you. What about you? Are you still dealing with that kind of shame? Do you sit there and you hear and you read in scripture about what Christ calls us to on the vision that is cast for a believer and you just feel unworthy of it? You say, yeah, but I've let you down before. I don't know if I can do that again. If that's the case, Jesus wants to restore you to who you are fully. 
You see, I think it's so important for us to face our past because to face our past and who we are is to acknowledge how hopeless we were and how hopeless we are without Jesus. It's a necessary step in turning our attention to our Father. Our Savior wants the saying to ring true like Father, like Son. As a faithful Sunday school student, uh, I was always confused by this idea of being made in God's image. The way that I understood it as a kid is I thought that there was a larger version of Jeremy up in the sky surrounded by clouds. I said, oh, that's cool. I'm created in his image. He probably looks like me. I wonder how that works for other people. And it wasn't until many years later that I started to understand that when we speak of being created in God's image, we're more so talking about the qualities rather than the physical attributes. And as a church, we spent several weeks studying these attributes, right? These I am statements. My prayer is that as you learned more about who Jesus says he is, as you learn more about his identity and his qualities, that that not only just filled your head with knowledge, but it also encouraged you that that is an example that we follow. But you know what I find myself thinking a lot of times as I hear these I am statements and I, I read about the incredible things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry? I say, well, that's great, but that can never be me. Peter would have known Jesus' qualities intimately. I mean, after all, he just spent the past three years with him. He was there as those I am statements were being taught. He saw every day Jesus' agape love at work. So when faced with his past, Peter would have understood that I cannot match that. Shame would be a natural human reaction to comparing yourself to Jesus. We just can't live up to the example. But Jesus wasn't concerned with Peter's reaction, only his restoration. Jesus completely overcomes Peter's shame. You know how? By elevating his status. Verse 17, Jesus then said to him, feed my sheep. I often say that my favorite parts of youth ministry were the light bulb moments. When a student who has been stubborn for a few years finally gets it and says, oh, this is for me. This was Peter's light bulb moment. There's no doubt he would be familiar with the shepherd analogy. There's two layers to it. Feed my sheep. Number one, Peter understands it just personally in his life. He's a lot more connected to that agriculture culture that we, you know, spend so much time having to explain nowadays. He would have completely understood the idea of shepherd and sheep. But layer two, he's just spent three years with Jesus and he understands the spiritual layer of it. So by using the same terminology, feed my sheep, Jesus was casting a higher calling to Peter. He's saying, as I leave, you are now in charge of my sheep. You follow my footsteps. That's the last thing I want us to understand. If our blessings point to our Father and our Father points to our identity, then when we understand our identity in Christ, that leads us to knowing our calling Our restored identity points us towards our calling. Jesus continued to define Peter's future. This is verse 18. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you walked. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said to him, Follow me.
After this conversation on the beach, his life would never be the same. Jesus painted the picture clearly for him. That agape love you felt you couldn't claim, that sacrificial love, you will one day demonstrate it by laying down your life for what you believe. And we know throughout history that that was true. You couldn't claim me in your words. One day you'll claim it in your actions. So what about us? Does our life look different because of our understanding of who Jesus is? Our understanding of his character and our, his identity? I believe it needs to. So how do we accomplish that? I believe it's simply laid out for us in verse 19. What's the key? Follow me. Follow in the example of Jesus. I think we often get lost in trying to define what God's calling is in our life. What is he asking me to do? It's simple. Follow him. Follow me. I am what Tim would call a baby Presbyterian. And I've been spending a lot of time reading through the history of this um, denomination and really falling in love for what it stands for. And through that process, I came across uh, the EPC's definition of what it looks like to be missional. It just blew me away. It takes a long time to process. I'll read it for us twice. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has given a church to accomplish his mission in the world. It's heavy. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Simply put, we are all called to do the same thing Follow him. With Jesus departing, it was important for Peter to continue this mission. He was not starting a new one. He was simply following in the example that was set forth by the Messiah. It's pretty simple. I mean, you can really narrow it down to just follow the example on the beach. Step one, point others towards God. How? How? You can point others to his goodness, 153 fish. If you think that's not good, who else could provide that? You point others towards God. Number two, once drawn to God, you explain how he restores the identity. You had mistakes. You were helpless. Jesus has come. You're restored. Third, once restored, you commission them to do the same for others. It's cyclical. In fact, it's that cycle that got us from the beach all the way to where we are today. Christianity is what it is today because people have replicated that process over and over and over and somewhere along the way you got caught in it too and now you are being called to replicate it. It's the same model they followed on the beach. It's the same 
it's the same model that on the day of Pentecost, Peter followed as he preached and he commissioned the church. It's the same model that we follow here on Faxon. It's the same model that we're going to follow on Summer. It's the same model. It was in a conversation here at the Ave, actually, uh, that, that really got me thinking about this principle. Um, I've been in these conversations a whole lot where, where I explain, you know, like I used to be a pastor, um, I'm teaching now, and, and, and a lot of people ask, you know, why'd you, why'd you get out? And the simple answer is I just felt a little bit burnt out. And uh, I think it was Austin asked me one time, he was like, so you went into the one job that you felt burnt out in to the next job that probably burns out people the most? <laughs> teaching? Like, why would you do that? And... I just don't have an answer for it, but here's what I do know. About a year before I made the the jump into MTR, I was reading through scripture, and I kept on seeing this idea that Jesus' most effective ministry was done outside of the church walls, in the community, among the least of these. And, And I couldn't shake this conviction that maybe that's what I needed to do. And I, I, I didn't know how to accomplish that. So I did what I think a lot of us do. I, I prayed and, you know, Lord, what's my next step? Like, like what do I need to do? Um, and ultimately, it just came down to this piece of just follow me. It doesn't matter where you are. If you are following in the footsteps of Christ... If you are replicating what you have seen, we're not going to do it perfectly. Sometimes we may find ourselves back at square one. But as long as you are following me, I can use that. And I will use that. And community will spur it on. So Avenue, church family, are are we pointing others to our Father? Are we pointing others to his blessings? Are we pointing them to what we are called to do? The truth is, some of us may still feel like we're on that beach. We feel frustrated, stagnant, facing the mistakes, feeling like we're back at square one. If that's you, Take heart in what we've read tonight, but do not handle that alone. You have a community here that has been in that cycle, who is in it currently, and who wants to help you. So if you're an elder or a deacon here at the app, can you just raise your hand so that we can see? Yeah. Whether their hands up or not, you have a community that is willing to spur you on. How different would our lives look today if they had just stayed on that boat, frustrated that they didn't catch anything, and called it a day? They didn't. They followed Jesus. And we're here today because of it. That'll preach. Let's pray.